Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. There's a story in the Washington Post from November 22nd, 2021. And a woman by the name of Wendy Wine, W-E-I-N, of Michigan, decided she wanted her ex-husband dead. And so rather than do the deed herself, she decided to do the natural thing, which is to search on the internet for a hitman. This is the world we live in. She stumbles upon the website rentahitman.com. I'm not making this up. It was in the Washington Post. Jonathan Edwards writes the story. He says, the website promised her confidentiality. It boasted of industry awards. It showed off testimonials of satisfied customers. Unbeknownst to Wendy, there were some 700 others that had used this website. It was run by a man named Bob Eines, Bob Eines who um, a few years previously had bought the domain name and set up the site and just kind of let it go. But sure enough, at one point in 2004, thinking that the site was dead, he got contacted from a woman named Helen. And sure enough, Helen wanted to kill three of her relatives. And in reaching back out, trying to gauge the seriousness of this individual, he asked two different questions. Do you still require our services And do you want to connect us with what you call a field representative? (laughs) When she affirmed she did, Eines knew she was serious and contacted local authorities who then contacted Canadian police. Helen served four months in prison. Seems like our world is at ease with death. We have become flippant about finality. But if you're here this morning and you hold to a Christian worldview, we see death differently. See, death, according to the way we view the world, the way the Bible describes the world, is not natural. Death is the product of rebellion against God. It's not simply to be accepted as the norm. It is not to be leveraged for our purpose like Wendy and Helen had done. See, death is a means by which God uses to highlight our rebellion against him. We'll kind of dig into this this morning, but here's our big idea. See, God alone is to control life and death. God alone is to control life and death. And all of us, as we have living, beating hearts inside of our chests, should reckon with the fact of our coming death, our impending death, and reckon with the God who controls it. I want to kind of walk through an argument this morning. I want to walk through a way of thinking about death, and then kind of toward the close actually bring this commandment to bear on what we see in the Bible about what it says about death in particular. And so we're going to start off that God is the author of death, and we'll kind of unpack that. We'll talk about man uses death for his purpose as the second point. And then finally, we'll conclude with this idea that God is the author of life. If you're a visitor here with us this morning, this is not normal for us. Typically, 
basically we'll take a passage and unpack it and kind of uh, inspect its various pieces and bring its meaning to bear on who Jesus is and what our life means. But there are four words in our text this morning, and that would be a really boring sermon to you. So what we want to do, rather, is actually expand the concept out to the full breadth of the Bible and kind of unpack what the Bible says about death and about murder specifically. So we're going to dive in. Now, we've done this before, and we've talked about these Ten Commandments. This commandment bears a specific place, and we've talked about commandments one through four are dealing with our orientation toward God, right? You shall have no other gods before me, commandment one. You shall make no graven images, commandment two. Commandment three is that you will not take the Lord's name in vain. Commandment number four is that you take a Sabbath day and you keep it holy unto the Lord. Commandment five is about the home, right? You shall honor your father and mother. We talked about that last week. Commandments six through 10, though, are the second table commandments. If you remember in Matthew, I think it's 22, someone asked Jesus what the most important commandment was. And he says, uh, the first is to honor the Lord your God. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, these last four commandments are dealing with that second commandment. How do we love our neighbor as ourself? Well, it goes without saying, doesn't it that murdering your neighbor is not loving. I don't know why I'm pausing. It's obvious, is it not? <laughs> Thank you. We might get hung up on how adultery is not loving or how our uh, jealousy of, of what someone else has is also not loving, our coveting of their stuff or their whatever they have. We'll unpack those things in future weeks, but this morning we're entering into a new phase. How do we love our neighbor well? I want to talk about this issue of death and about murder. First, God is the author of death. I want to note this morning, we've kind of put uh, the sub points in our outline on the slides this morning so that this might be a little bit easier to follow for you this morning. First, God is the author of death, and point number one under this is that God promised death for disobedience. If we were to go back to Genesis chapter 2, do you remember in Genesis chapter 2, the world is fresh, it still has that new car smell, Adam and Eve are there, they're placed in the garden, Adam is, is, is tasked with naming all of the animals, and God specifically says to him this in Genesis two seventeen. but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely, what, die. So God told Adam and Eve that eating of this forbidden fruit would result in death. I wonder if they had any notion of what death was. Here they are surrounded by this world teeming with life. Adam was naming animals. Plants surrounded them. Everything was alive. And so when God says, you will surely die, I wonder if they tilted their head a little bit. There it is, the promise, right? God promised certain death for disobedience. And Jesus later on will give us an education about this person, Satan. Satan was a murderer. That's what John said. John 8 says, Jesus is speaking, and he says, He, that Satan, was a murderer from the beginning. And what he does now is he leverages this command of God 
for his murderous purpose. He frames Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He convinces them to do what they ought not to do so that murder and death might be brought into the world. If we were to fast forward to Genesis chapter 3, Satan tempts Adam and Eve to bring about this death. He tempts specifically with the knowledge of, of good and evil that should lead to equality with God. We reviewed this last week in Genesis 3. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that you, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, when Adam and Eve take the bait, they are subject to God's judgment, which is death. And so Adam and Eve and the serpent all experience these cursings. Most notable among them is Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. God says to Adam, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam's promised this difficulty in his work, but he's more notable for our purpose this morning. He's promised that he will surely die, that he will return to the dust from which he was created. It's interesting this morning that Adam was created from dust and the breath of God. And when he rebelled against the breath of God, he was to come just to dust again. When he rebels against God, he is diminished to simply being one of those elements, dust. You know, sometimes you and I, we have to tear down to build up. We have to split the earth open to plant seed. We have to tear down the old building to build something new. We have to chop down the tree, as it were, to create the instrument for the musician. I love, I was looking this morning at 9-11, the 9-11 Memorial and Museum in New York City that took tragedy and in its wake celebrated heroism and bravery. We built something beautiful on top of something that was not beautiful. See, God created death for his purpose. God created death to bring about restoration. So you and I think about death as punishment, don't we? Punishment and discipline. I tell my kids this all the time, right? Punishment and discipline are two different things. Punishment is intentionally inflicted consequences as retribution for a wrong. And discipline is an intentionally inflicted consequence used to instruct. One is oriented toward retribution. The other is motivated toward renewal. God tells us that discipline is for those whom God loves. He uses discipline in our lives so that he can teach us and instruct us, right? Well, death is no, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Death is no different this morning. In this way, death was not meant to be punishment. God inflicted all of creation to futility in hope, as Paul says, uh, for the revealing of the sons of God. That is, that there was an aim behind God's curse, which he inflicted on us in Genesis 3. God's initiation of death does not mean that he is finished with humanity. Quite the contrary, actually. God initiates death to create the need for redemption and to set in motion the coming means of his redemption in Christ. See, God uses death for redemption. Let's kind of just work through that for a second. Notice that God 
enters into this garden in Genesis chapter 3 and already starts the process of drawing out his children. He seeks them out. He asks the question, where are you? He gently probes with these questions. He says, who told you that you were naked? What is this that you have done? He assigns guilt because uh, in Genesis 3, 14 and 70, he says, because you have done this, you will experience this curse. He assigns curses. Satan's told he's going to eat dirt. Eve has promised that she's going to have pain in childbearing. Uh, you ladies love that one, don't you? Adam is promised. That sounded, sorry, dismissive. I did not mean that to be dismissive. I meant that's a legit hard thing. I'm sorry. Adam's promised a cursed ground. And he's going to work in frustration for all the days of his life. And ultimately, he and his wife are promised death. Notice this, that when God curses Adam and Eve, it strikes at the very nature of their existence. Eve was given as a suitable helper for Adam, that if they were going to fill the earth and subdue it, they were going to have to procreate. They were going to have to have babies, right? Well, Adam couldn't do that alone. And so God gives Eve, and one of Eve's primary responsibilities is to be this helper suitable to Adam, and part of that responsibility is to bear children, and now that's going to come with a great deal of pain. Adam was put in the garden as a worker to cultivate and to keep it, and now cultivating and keeping the land will come with thorns and thistles. God strikes at the very notion of what they were created to do. It's as if God is saying, you can't be the fullness of who you were meant to be without me. God intentionally frustrates all of our godless existence. And death is the foremost example of this. See, while Satan has learned to manipulate and use death as his tool, Death has always existed for God's purpose. Death sets the clock on our available moments that we have. No matter how young you are here this morning, in the back of your mind, you're thinking about how many more seconds you have remaining, how many more heartbeats are left in your chest. See, death holds out mystery for what our continued existence looks like after we die. Nobody's come back and told us other than those crazy books you hear about, right? See, all the while, God promises us that he knows death, that he created life, and that when we trust him with our existence, he will grant us this blessing of eternal life. See, the argument here is that God is the author of death. God created death for his purpose. But Satan's not the only one who's leveraged death against us. We've also leveraged death. As we turn to our second point, we say that man uses death for his purpose too. Just, and it's not just the, the Wendy's and the Helens of this world. All of us, in some ways, are tempted to use death as an advantage to ourselves. I was thinking this morning about how we've just done this wacky thing in the last 50 years in the United States where we just wait for Supreme Court justices to die so we can replace them. Like, that's a sick and twisted thing to do. Can we be honest about that? We're just waiting for them to die. We're leveraging death for our purpose, political or otherwise. 
Let's take a tour this morning of the biblical history of murder. Doesn't that sound like fun? You guys love your murder mystery podcast. Well, now we're going to do it through the Bible. Stop number one might be Cain, Genesis chapter four. Cain with all of his anger bound up in his heart. Cain was the first son of Adam and Eve. And because God had promised that Eve's descendant would crush Satan's head in Genesis 3, Eve rejoiced at Cain's birth. She says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And that kind of has this reverberation of that promise that he gave in Genesis chapter 3. But when Cain and his brother Abel grew up, Abel brings these pleasing offerings to God because he's a man of animals. And he brings meat sacrifices to God. But Cain is a person of the ground. And when he brings sacrifices to God, he brings like turnips and onions, right? It's not the same. And the Bible actually tells us that the Lord was pleased with Abel and his offering, but he was not pleased with Cain and his offering. And so Cain becomes angry, and he's warned by God. God says this, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Notice the heeds, the warnings of our God in mercy to his son, Cain. What happens is that Cain rises up and kills his brother. But we step away from that and we see that Cain's anger drove him to murder. What God told him, right? Why are you angry? Cain's anger at his poor relationship with God drove him to kill his brother. He snuffed out the competition, as it were. So stop number two. We were to fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We know this story. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. Nathan's words expose the intention of David's actions with Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel 11, we find David sleeping with another man or with another man's wife, Uriah's wife, right? In order to cover up his tracks, he brings Uriah back from the war front, and he tells uh, Uriah's commanding officer to put him at the front of the battle because this guy won't go home. David's trying to cover his tracks. He has slept with this man's wife. He wants Uriah to sleep with his wife so that Uriah thinks that he is the father of this child that is coming. And instead, he develops this murderous purpose to kill Uriah and to take Bathsheba as his wife. When David is confronted about this by Nathan the prophet, Nathan says the following, You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You see what Nathan's doing here? He's holding both of these things in the same breath. He's saying, you killed because you lusted. You lusted and then you killed. God's judgment is to give David's wife to another, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11. See, David's murderous example here is not driven by the anger of Cain, it's driven by the lust of David. David has to cover the tracks of his guilt, so he murders. Step number three, we're really 
pushing through the memorial of murder here in the Old Testament. We push through to Acts chapter 9 with the example of Saul. And if David was motivated by lust and Cain was motivated by anger, Saul is motivated by self-righteousness. Later on in his life, he would describe the stonings that he participated in against God's church. In Acts chapter 26, he said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but went uh, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I murdered. I killed. See, all of these examples show us that there are many motives for murder. There is the Cain example of one who kills from anger. There's David who kills out of shame. There's Saul who kills out of pride. You watch the murder shows, right? They tell you you have to have means, motive, an opportunity. We all have motive. Every one of us has motive. We have a murderous heart that beats within our chest. We'll kind of unpack this here in a moment, but for now we see the biblical example that there are lots of different roads that lead us to the same outcome. Someone once asked Ruth Bell Graham, Billy Graham's wife, they asked her this question, have you ever considered divorce? Kind of a hot-button issue at the time. So Ruth Graham responded like this. Divorce? No. Murder? Yes. See, our desires lead us to murderous action. James gives us a warning here. James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. In all of these examples, desire drives to death. Men murder to get their desire accomplished. So what happens is that humanity has hijacked death. Death was intended for the redemptive purpose of God, but we have used it to our end. Prime example would be the abortion industry. The abortion industry uses death for the purpose of sexual freedom. The healthcare industry uses death for income. So often is the case. If a crime requires motive, means, and opportunity, James tells us that there is always motive. But we're still missing something here, aren't we? We're getting the full picture of, of what murder and death are all about. It's not just that God created death and men hijacked it. The final thing is that God is the restorer of life. See, God brought all things to live, didn't he? God created all life from the plants of the field to the cows in the barn to the people at the furthest corners of the earth, God had created life. And specifically, Jesus himself is active in this creative activity. It's what we see in, in John chapter 1. All things were made by him. Without him, nothing has been made that has been made. Colossians chapter 1, 15, he's the image of the invisible God. He's the creator of all things. 
See, God is the giver of life. He initiated life. He started life. He breathed into our nostrils his breath. He formed us out of dirt. He has created us. God is the one who creates and gives life. It's what Paul says in Acts chapter 17. He says, in him, we live and move and have our being. It's not just that God created us. It's that he's actively sustaining us. He's actively holding us up, holding this universe together so that he himself is at its center. God has created life. God has instilled his own image in us. In Genesis 1, we're told that God made man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. He has given us eternality, reason, forethought, to name a few things that differentiate us from his other creatures because we are imago dei. We are created in the image of God. God's creative act culminated toward the creation of man and the giving of, giving of Sabbath rest. So God tells Adam and Eve that he has given every plant for food to them. And Adam and Eve were to fill the earth and subdue it. They were viceroys of his creation, entrusted with the entirety of what God had made, called upon to expand their image bearing across the, the land, across the globe. And so God authored human life, and he set his image inside of us. But you and I have another problem. It's not just that our hearts beat. It's what we call spiritual death. You and I, we're like dead men walking, right? You understand the term and, and someone who's on death row, they're described as dead men walking as they're walking toward the electric chair or toward their execution. That's the words they use. You and I, we might be physically alive, but spiritually, Paul tells us that we're dead. Dead in our transgressions and sins. There's no spiritual pulse about us. We have a different problem, not just physical life ending. We have a spiritual life problem. And it's not just this morning that God has created life and given us the gift of life so that we could enjoy these 60, 70, 80 years. God is the restorer of life because he gives spiritual resurrection. God has restored humanity in Jesus' death. Jesus spoke a, a message of eternal life amidst a culture of death. We were just in, in John, the book of John in the New Testament. John chapter 11 and 12 tell the story of one of Jesus' friends, Lazarus, who dies. Lazarus is sick. Jesus is made aware. He chooses not to go and heal him. He tells his disciples that this will not end in death, but sure enough, Lazarus dies. And so Jesus and his disciples travel back to Bethesda, where they came from, where Lazarus was. They find the sisters of Lazarus, and Jesus strikes up a conversation with Martha, the sister of Lazarus. And he says this, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. He asks Martha, do you believe this? See, after Lazarus had died, Jesus visits the family 
And he reminds them that he is the author of life, that he is the one who brings resurrection, that he's turning death for his purpose. So Jesus, the eternal son of God, entered into death. We all sing the hymn that Wesley wrote, Amazing Love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Tear in Jesus' death at the hands of murderous men that God brings life to his people. And see, Jesus exited death by resurrection, and he invites us to exit our spiritual and physical death through resurrection, through union with Jesus Christ. All who believe on Jesus Christ are no longer enslaved to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin and death. Now, the the sting of death has been taken away through the resurrection of Christ. So, let's talk about our passage this morning. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. When God tells us that we shall not murder, it's not because uh, life, or it is because, excuse me, it's because life and death belong to him. This isn't just my argument. I want to just, bring a couple passages to bear on this this morning. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Did you hear that? God of the universe says, I kill. I make alive, I wound, and I heal. Let's go to the other end in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. This is Jesus speaking. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Nobody takes the keys from Jesus. Jesus holds the keys to death and to resurrection. Nobody strips them from him. Is that your belief? Are you afraid at night? Are you afraid of how you might die? Are you afraid of cancer? Are you afraid of the other things? No one strips the keys of death and Hades from Jesus. He's the author of life. He's the resurrected son of God. He brings life to his people. He will not leave you to your physical death, he will raise you to a spiritual afterlife. See, what we've seen in the sixth commandment is not simply that God forbids murderous activity. Rather, we see that there is a God who preserves life. And he sets us on this trajectory through the rest of the Bible where he preserves life time and time and time again. He gives life to Lazarus. He raised to new life. He promises eternal life to his people, to his followers. And you and I are recipients of divine grace from now forever. Nobody strips those keys from his hand. Our God is the life giver. He created life. He cheated death. He sustains life. He commands that we honor it like he honors it. 
Now, here's what you're thinking this morning. I'm not a murderer. Yeah. God's serious about human life. And so here in this commandment, he warns us about this murderous desire. And we've seen a wide variety of desires that can lead to murder. We can see uh, there's lust, there's anger, there's all these different things in in the Bible narrative. One of the things that Jesus does is he grabs a hold of this commandment and he expands it. Jesus warns us that the taking of life is not the only expression of a murderous heart. Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said of, of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So we see from the words of Jesus himself, when our words are meant to tear down, we exhibit the same murderous heart as the worst serial killer we know. If we are sickened about images of Hamas traveling into the nurseries of these people in the Gaza Strip, dragging out children, murdering them, what Jesus tells us is the intent of our heart, while while different in scope and size, is just as sinful, just as wicked when we tell our brother that they're stupid. Just let that sink in for a second. Because you and I, what we like to do is we like to fault someone else. We decry someone else who's done this murderous activity. We like to talk about the abortion thing. We like to talk about that, but we ignore the corners of wickedness that exist in our own heart when we speak wicked words against one another. We are not resurrected to new life or we are not acting out our resurrected life when we speak against someone else with a dismissive, marginalizing tone. So that's the message for Gospel Community Church this morning. Now, many of you are going to pick up a knife or a gun or something else and have murderous intent in your heart. At least, God forbid, we hope not. But many of us will let the words roll right off our tongue without a second thought myself included. No matter how much we disagree with someone else, we must understand that they are in some way like the God we are seeking to honor. Therefore, it is a self-contradiction to insult another in the name of our faithfulness to God. Those two things are in contradiction. How can I speak out against the image of God that I see in a brother or in a person and still claim to honor God with my words? Those two things are in contradiction. They cannot be. I want to call us to three different things this morning in light of this. 
See, inherent in this command is the celebration of life made in God's image. And I want to just have three encouragements for us. It's cheesy, I know. I want you to be a life preserver. I want you to be a life supporter. I want you to be a life giver. I don't know, all the different life things that just caught me. Um, I don't know why I'm explaining this to you. Let's be a life preserver, right? I would encourage you to go out to vote in this November 7th thing to preserve life. There are few political issues that bear a direct line between the scriptures and the thing that shows up on the ballot, and I, I definitely think that's the case here. Give blood. Preserve life. You know, when you donate blood, it actually might actually save someone else so that they can continue on and hear the gospel. In general, just stand in whatever way possible for the value of all life. In the midst of a culture of death, take your stand and say, life is valuable, life is precious, and live out those priorities in whatever way you can. Secondly, not just life-preserving, be life-supporting. Give your time and energy to help others in hard times. Sign up for meal trains, join a care community, volunteer at organizations that help improve the quality of another life around you. Be generally helpful to those who are in difficulties. So be life-preserving, be life-supporting. And here's the biggest, I think, be life-giving. As long as there is breath in your lungs, tell others of Jesus' resurrection. Christian, non-Christian, give life-giving words. Write texts and emails. Speak with others at the workplace. Speak with those in your community, uh, community group and, and remind them of the hope of resurrection in Jesus Christ. Open up your mouth. Use your tongue to give life to others. See, your words either give life or take it. Proverbs 12 says that um, there's one whose words are like sword thrusts. Like we can use our words to cut one another. And it goes on to say, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So the question before us is, as we live this resurrected life, as we've been given new life in Christ, are we going to use that resurrected life to cut down or to edify? I wonder if this morning we might become those who are truly valuing life. One of the best ways we can truly value life is to live ours to its fullest, to, to cling to the treasures of the gospel, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins so that we can live in this fullness of humanity that God has created us to live in. See, the, the sixth commandment isn't just about the prohibition about taking life. It's about God preserving life so that he alone can use it for his ends. I want to pray this morning that we would enjoy life and help others to enjoy life in all of their stations around us. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask now that you would make us those who so treasure our new life in Christ. So treasure this new creation that you've made us. So treasure the new life, the promise of eternal life that you've given us. That we would be pushed out into this world with new cause and new hope. Make us those who 
love you and love your word and therefore love people. Allow us, Father, by your grace and mercy to not be those who tear down with our words or our actions, but allow us instead to be those who edify and build up brothers and sisters who preach your life-giving gospel to those who do not know you, that you may be glorified in all things. Be glorified in your people as we respond to your message of life. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.